0: commandments in the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're going to look at two more of them today, the command to remember the Sabbath day and the command to honor father and mother. Those are the two that we'll look at today. Uh, Before we start, I do want to reiterate a couple of things that I said alluded to the first week, and that is despite our distaste, our modern distaste for laws and rules and commands, Because we feel that these prohibit the most precious of American commodities, freedom. But despite this bias, I just want to reiterate that God's laws and commands are really, truly good for us. They're good for us. Why do I say that? Three reasons. One, because His laws and commands show us God's character and they show us what is good. They keep us from having to guess as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. God's laws give us standards. If it was just up to us to determine good and evil, as many people think, you know, morality is just a social construct, then I think that's a bit troublesome. I mean, how can we say with any real backbone or sense of integrity that there's anyone anywhere in the world right now doing something that they should stop? Like regardless of just saying, well, that's just kind of a culture or whatever, there really are truly condemnable things happening in the world today. How can you say that without some sort of transcendent set of laws that it's above all of us? I mean, just going on popular social opinion for our morality, I think, could take you to some pretty wacky places, as both history and Internet polls have shown us time and time again. The British government launched an Internet poll for citizens to name its $287 million polar research vessel. Now, rather than choosing a respectable name like Falcon or Endeavor, the Brits' most voted name was none other than Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) And when it came down to it, the government did not take the suggestion. But you know, there's a darker side to some of these. Uh, Mountain Dew had a similar naming campaign for a new flavor that got hijacked by upvotes for the name Hitler did nothing wrong. And while you might say, yes, but these are just silly Internet polls, that's a lot different than real matters of ethics and morality, except, of course, it's not just Internet polls that can go terribly wrong, but people and whole societies, as we've seen so many times. So having a God-given moral code that doesn't leave us to sort things out for ourselves, it's actually a really good thing. But secondly, God's law shows us how far short we have fallen and how desperately we need forgiveness. There's a missionary story of the Taliabo people of Indonesia. And after the missionaries taught the people the Ten Commandments, a group of men visited the missionaries at their hut. And they said, We are in big trouble with God. God's law tells us not to kill, but we have killed other men. God's law tells us not to steal, but we have stolen. We have broken God's commandments, but we did not know that God commanded these things. From now on, we will keep God's commandments. A couple of weeks later, they returned to the missionary's hut, We are in really big trouble with God, they said. Now we know God's commandments, but we still break them. And they got it. They understood the law. It puts us in really big trouble with God. But the law can't fix it. It's the MRI machine. It can tell you about the stroke or the cancer and point you to the appropriate healing, but it cannot heal you by itself. The law is the diagnostic not the cure. The cure is the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in our place. The third reason that God's law is good is for those who do trust in Christ, now free from the demands of the law to save us. God's law gives us the shape of love that we offer to Him in return. What is love? As the song asks, love takes shape in action in obedience as we learn how to love the God who first loved us. Now, as we jump back into the commandments, you need to know that Christians do have slightly differing approaches to the Ten Commandments, though I think functionally most of us end up in a very similar place in day-to-day practice. Some Christians see the Ten Commandments as clearly expressing the moral will of God for His people. They reflect His unchanging character, and thus all Ten Commandments are still fully binding and in force for Christians today. Other Christians would say that the Ten Commandments were given to Israel as part of that covenant with them at that time, the Mosaic Covenant, it's called. But with the coming of Jesus, He's fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. We're no longer bound to it, even the Ten Commandments, though we're certainly still called to live holy and upright lives as outlined in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Which, as it turns out, at least nine out of the ten commands are reaffirmed and deepened by the New Testament. So, functionally, all Christians do affirm we should follow the ten commands with one complicated outlier, the command regarding Sabbath. So, let's look at it. Exodus 20, verse 8. "'Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." So. What should Christians do with this command today? Again, some would say Sabbath got to, kind of got to. A day of rest and worship is rooted in the pattern of creation. So really this is for all people of all time. Others would say Sabbath get to, not got to. Sabbath was a covenant sign for the Israelites that pointed us to ultimate rest in Jesus Christ. So the actual practice of keeping Sabbath once a week, while perhaps very wise for us, is not obligatory. Get to, not got to. But at the end of the day, both team got to and team get to kind of say Sabbath should do. Either way. So today I'd like us to try to glean as much help and beauty from this command, even as we acknowledge Christian differences here. Now, remember with the first two commands, I said that Martin Luther taught his barber to pray using the Ten Commandments as a set of books. A textbook to learn, a hymn book to give thanks, a journal to confess our sins, and a prayer book to teach us how to ask for God's help in keeping these commands. So, the textbook. What does this command teach us about God? The command about Sabbath. Well, it seems that God was concerned that Israel keep a rhythm of work and rest and worship. Sabbath is a Hebrew term that simply means stop, cease. Israel was called to be especially non-productive on this day, to keep it set apart from the others, holy to the Lord. And they shouldn't pawn off their need for work on someone else either. You know, it's like, You can't just make your son or your daughter or your servant or your livestock or an immigrant in your midst uh, do your work for you on this day. Why? Well, you know, because God rested from creation on the seventh day. He blessed it and made it holy. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? Why should they rest? Because God rested. Why should we rest? Because God rested. At least two reasons. Pertaining to creation and to salvation. Creation. On the seventh day, God rested and took delight in all he had made. You see, the God of the Bible is not just a utilitarian God or a moral manager, but he's an artist and a father who delights. And if we're made in his image, then we must realize that there's more to your life than work. There's more to you than your work. We are so quick, I mean all of us, ministers included, to build an identity in life based around what we do, our career, our achievements, especially in the modern era. Even more than our family these days, we tend to build a sense of worth around our work. When introducing ourselves, usually the first thing we tell people right after our name is what we do. And while, of course, we are created to work, it's a big part of who we are, but it's not everything. But resting on the seventh day perhaps has even more to do with our salvation than our creation. What do I mean? On day seven in creation, God finished his work and rested. On the cross, as Sabbath was approaching, Jesus said, it is finished so that you and I can rest from our work. Sabbath rest was a pointer to salvation by grace, not by works. So the command about Sabbath... Invites us to turn from attitudes of self reliance and independence, thinking that everything from my daily bread to my eternal salvation can be produced by the work of my hands if I just grind a little harder. Pastor Pete Scazzaro talks about Sabbath like a rope in a blizzard. So, back in the day, in like fierce Midwest winters, Uh, farmers would tie a rope first to their house and then next around themselves while walking to their barn to check on or feed their animals in the blizzard because the blizzards could get so intense that you could totally white out even in your own yard. Have you ever been in a whiteout? Like A total whiteout? I've been in one once and it is disorienting. You can hardly see two feet in front of you and farmers without a rope could get lost wandering their own property in circles and freezing to death within yards of their own house. Schizero says that we live in a whiteout of activity today with our lives always teetering on the edge of full and overflowing. We're overscheduled, tense, addicted to hurry, frantic, preoccupied, fatigued, and starved for time. So something like a Sabbath, intentionally stepping off the hamster wheel for a day, is a radical, countercultural statement in our modern era. So, practically, how would one Sabbath these days? It takes a lot of preparation and work to take the better part of a day away as a Sabbath. There's a lot of helpful resources out there from Matthew Sleaf's book, 24-6, John Mark Comer's book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, Larry Trotter's spiritual stuff with Larry class I think he's actually talking about uh, some Sabbath practices today and then I meet you, mentioned Pete Schizero. I like his approach to taking a day of rest he breaks it down to four categories uh, Pete Schizero does this is stop rest delight and contemplate stop rest delight and contemplate he begins with stop it's what the word Sabbath means On Sabbath, we stop our work and recognize our limits. We let go of the illusion that the world runs on us, and we submit to the fact that we'll never actually finish all of our projects and goals. A day of rest invites us to trust God with unfinished work. Stop. Second, rest. On a Sabbath, you can do things that truly replenish your soul. It's not a day to overindulge in laziness, but to rest. I mean, sure, a Sabbath might include some TV and a nap, but it can also mean other things that probably fill you up much better. Hiking, reading, cooking a good meal, serving someone, enjoying a hobby or a sport. So Stop. Rest. Third, delight. On Sabbath, we enjoy the bounty and the beauty of the life God has given us. Even in hard times, we have so much to be thankful for. How much value could there be in stopping to take a day to delight in your family, to delight in your friends, the beautiful town that we live in, wonderful coffee to drink, amazing ice cream to eat, these and many other gifts we have at the kind hand of our God. So stop Rest, delight, and fourth, contemplate. On Sabbath, we don't take a break from God. Okay, that's like the one thing you don't take a break from on Sabbath. We draw near to him and hear his voice, ponder his love, and recommit our ways to him. So Sabbath should never mean selfish indulgence, for we're called to find our rest in God. So, a lot to learn from Sabbath and a lot more that I can say. But next, let's go to the hymnal, a way to give thanks to God, I can think of at least five ways this command would teach us to give thanks. Uh, first, we can thank God that he cares about your well-being as a human and doesn't expect you to live like a machine. Thank you, God, that you care for me in that way. Second, we can thank God that he wants to protect us from building our whole identity and worth around our work, but rather that we are the beloved of God and that he's finished the most important work for us. Thank you, God. Third, we can thank God that he wants to spend time with us such that he would ask us to set aside time in our week wholly unto him, even as we're doing right now. Thank you, God. Fourth, we can thank God that he offers us a day of rest to anticipate the final day of rest. Have you ever had a day of rest and at the end of it, you were like, man, I just need to do this more often. That was awesome. Because this is a small pointer to the final full day of rest where the curse is lifted and we can know and delight and contemplate the love of God for all eternity. He gives us a day of rest as a foreshadowing to that. Thank you, God. Fifth, we can thank God that He gives us a day like today to hear His gracious word preached to us. And even in this moment we could cease our internal strivings for just a second and be reminded of the rest offered to us in the finished work of Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Thank you, God. But this is Lent season, so we got some journaling, some repenting and confessing to do as well to confess the way we've broken the spirit of this command. I think there's probably two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to breaking Sabbath, in a sense. On one side, we can use this command to confess our own self-reliance and incessant need for success. I mean, some of you are missing out on your life and enjoying time with God's family and those you love because you're so dominated by work, and productivity. This thing and this thing rarely ever leave your hand or move away from your gaze for a second. You're missing the scenery of the Grand Canyon of life for the candy crush of getting stuff done. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in defiance of the need to stop for sleep. Uh, Penn State history professor Alan Derrickson found that Edison believed sleep was a waste of time. He questioned if people even needed to sleep at all, and he himself slept no more than four hours per night and expected his employees to do the same. And he's had a big impact on us. Granted, I am thankful for the light bulb, but, you know, who needs to stop? Who needs to sleep when we can just turn on the lights or turn on the computer and keep on going? But Oxford professor, uh, professor Russell Foster, speaking from a purely naturalistic evolutionary point of view, calls us the supremely arrogant species to think that we can shirk our need for rest and just work constantly. Supremely arrogant species. Our propensity to never stop and do more than we really should reveals our pride, our self-reliance and a lack of trust in God. And I speak as a a fellow offender here. Now, on the other side of the ditch, this command can also help us confess our propensity for self-indulgence. Where we become so protective of our time off or our little snippets of downtime that we simply use them to binge, escape, and seek out our own pleasure. A Sabbath? That sounds great. To do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. But that's not quite what Sabbath is about. And sometimes our Sabbath day may involve bringing rest to others as well. If you take a day away from your work, you can make a meal for someone else in need. You could serve someone in another way. And it may fill you up in a way you didn't expect and replenish you. Even as an act of rest from your normal work. Serving can be restful. Jesus began his ministry on a Sabbath day. Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. In His words to the Pharisees who would have prevented Him from compassionate healing on the Sabbath day, He said this, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And as He said just before this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We tend to think of rest only in terms of amusement, entertainment, and escape, and thus we can be overly protective and selfish with our off time, unwilling to go above and beyond for someone when they have a real need. And Isaiah 58 speaks about this kind of Sabbath, this kind of fasting that does not consider the needs of others, and God does not dig it, so we can confess This command helps us confess our selfish indulgence of time and pray with the psalmist, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your word. And then after we confess, this command teaches us to pray. Teaches us to pray that we would find our true rest in God, who invites us to come to him for rest. Rest rest from our weary labor of proving ourselves and making our way in the world. Jesus didn't come to break the Sabbath, he came to be the Sabbath. And so we can pray to him that we would wisely use the time given to us to embrace rest and worship along with work and productivity and that this pattern of rest and work, work and rest, would help us set our hearts on the final rest to come. So that's how the command about Sabbath can help us learn, give thanks, confess, and pray for help. Okay, next, father and mother, Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is every parent's favorite commandment. If your kid is dozing off now, it's a good time to give them a nudge uh, kids, if your parents are dozing off, you wouldn't dare nudge them right now, would you? Just let them, let them let them be. They don't need to know about this. Yeah. All right, so first, in our textbook, what do we learn from this command of what God expects of us? Man, first of all, honoring father and mother is a big deal to God. There's only 10, and this makes it in. And in the New Testament, this command is repeated and basically quoted. Ephesians 6 Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And in other places, disobeying parents is listed right alongside the kinds of things that you would think of as, quote-unquote, really bad sins. Romans 1, 28. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Speaking of people who have rejected Him. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, <gasps> disobedient to parents. It's in that list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is savage, right? It's right in that list. Or 2 Timothy 3 1 through 4. Understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. There it is again. Yikes. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You ever think of kids obeying your parents in categories like that? Like, whoa, obeying and honoring parents is kind of a big deal. And it's a big deal because it's foundational to learning to respect all other authority in life, God included. St. Augustine said, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone that he will spare? Now, interestingly, most commentators point out that this command, while certainly applicable to kids and teenagers in their parents' homes, was primarily directed to the adults of Israel. Hence the command, the Ten Commandments command, it doesn't tell adults to obey their parents, but to honor them. Because while obedience is how children honor their parents, that isn't necessarily expected of adults, but the command to honor our parents remains, even if we no longer function under their direct authority. So this command for Israel seems to find its most natural application in caring for aging parents. This is another thing that we learn from this command, that God desires for us to care for the elderly, our parents first and foremost. The book of Leviticus would go on to say things like this, stand up. In the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly and revere your God, I am the Lord. Or Proverbs 23, riffs on the fifth commandment. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. So as our parents age, Christians are called to honor and care for them. And in a day and age where many of us live farther away from our parents, that might mean helping them move closer to us or perhaps being willing to move closer to them or to help our siblings who do love, live close to them to love them and care for them. This is not an easy process of changing caretaking roles, even amongst the best parent-child relationships. Otherwise, I imagine there wouldn't be a command for it if it was that easy. But for parent relationships that are strained, or even toxic. This command to honor and care for your parent can literally feel impossible. What do you do if a parent has been abusive or neglectful or absent in the past? This is really tough. And if this is where you're at, um, I'd point you toward a short blog post by Jen Wilkin called showing honor on Mother's Day, even when it's hard. Short, but some good insight there on how to honor difficult parents by walking in forgiveness, by holding your tongue, by celebrating other good mentors that maybe God has brought into your life, among some other suggestions. And more on this in just a minute. But for now, I think I'll just add that if what Jesus says about the church is true, then we are also a family. And we have the opportunity and duty to honor the elderly in our church as well. Because the elderly can often feel, especially in a church as relatively young as our congregation is, that they don't really have a place. And our culture doesn't help things here. We tend to celebrate youth culture and implicitly communicate that older folks should just take a back seat. Let the kids drive. you know. But older men and women here, and I say this as a younger man, we need you. Older women, we need you at our tables in Lily Moms to help young moms who are struggling. We need you in our Bible studies and small groups to impart the years that you've spent learning and living under God's word. Older men, we need you. We younger men who are fumbling our way through life need to hear about your lives, your mistakes, and your successes and how you have endured. We need you. So, church, let me encourage you. These are the kinds of relationships that you can create if you'll engage in places like the Saturday morning men's Bible study, women's Bible study, Sunday morning adult classes, serving on Sunday morning, being involved in Lily Moms and other men's and women's ministry events. These are great spaces for multi-generational friendships. So find a table, younger people, with folks who are older than you at those events. Sit next to them one Sunday. Introduce yourself. Let's honor the fathers and mothers amongst us. So, fathers, mothers, spiritual or physical, we should honor them as best we can. Kevin DeYoung gives four practical suggestions for this. Let me just pass these on to you quickly. Four things that you can say to help honor your parents. For younger kids, this one's for you. You can say, yes, mom or yes, dad. It's an amazing moment for your parents when they ask you to do something and you don't begin a Supreme Court debate over whether you should do it or not. You just pause the video game, put down the toys and say, yes, mom. Yes, dad. (laughs) You know, it's an amazing moment. You can honor your parents by saying those words. Two, for kids young and old you can say thank you. You can look for things, both past and present, that you could thank your parents for. You can tell them, you can text them, you can send them a card that just says thank you. Three, for kids young and old, you can say I'm sorry to your parents. Even if there are things that you mostly think are your parents' fault, you can do a world of healing by owning up to your part of the pie and letting God work on them for their part, and simply say, I'm sorry for how I probably hurt you. And say, I'm sorry. And then, fourth, for older kids, i.e., adults, be sure to say hello. Make a point to call, to text, stop by, visit for holidays as much as you can, especially as they get older. Those are four ways you could honor your parents in what you say. Lots of things that we learn from this command, but next, our hymnal. How would this command prompt us to give thanks to God and honoring father and mother? Well, first, you could thank him for the gift of life that you have, that you would not have without your parents. As Martin Luther wrote to his barber, We can give thanks to God, my greater, how wondrously he's created me, body and soul, and how he's given me life through my parents. He has brought me into this world, has sustained and cared for me, nurtured and educated me with great diligence, carefulness, and concern through danger, trouble, and hard work. To this moment, he protects me, his creature, and helps me in countless dangers and troubles. It is as though he were creating me anew every moment. You can give thanks for the gift of life. You wouldn't have it without your parents. And then second, uh, I think we could give thanks that God cares about aging people. Because unless you die younger, that's going to be all y'all and me. We all have to endure aging. And God cares about those who are aging. Third, we can give thanks that through keeping this command, God shows us a path to abundant life. I don't think this is a promise to Christians for extra longevity of life, that they'll just be nice to their parents. But it's a promise that we will walk in the path of God's blessing when we honor our parents. And the next, our journal. How does the command to honor father and mother challenge you to confess and repent in this season of Lent? This is something, as we saw, remember that God takes seriously. So kids, teenagers, how have you fallen short of giving honor to your mom and dad, even this week? Do you give them respect? Do you show them grace? The older and older I get, the more and more I realize how much grace I should have extended to my parents as a young man. Because parenting is just slap hard. And many of your folks are doing the best that they can. Give them grace. Give them honor. And then moms and dads, adults, are you living in such a way that makes it easier for your kids to honor you? Do you recognize the honorable position you've been called to, to in some ways represent God's authority to them in their life? And are you modeling to them the kind of honor you would like your kids to one day give you by showing it to your own parents, even now as they age? All right, and then last, our prayer book. How does a Christian learn to pray from the fifth commandment? And this is where I think knowing Christ makes all the difference, especially, and I mentioned this earlier, if you have a strained relationship with a parent, because you see in Christ, you've been adopted by a perfect father. God himself is your father. And in Christ, you can know the acceptance, the affirmation, the blessing and love that you always wanted from your earthly parents, but never fully got, because they could never truly give what your heavenly Father can give you. And if you are secure in knowing God as your Father then you can have the inner stability and poise to love your parents for the flawed human beings that they are instead of punishing them for what they failed to be. You can extend to them compassion and grace because you have the one that they were supposed to point to all along. Knowing God as your father is the only thing that can truly enable you to honor your father and mother. And so you can go to him in prayer, asking that you would be filled with the love of the Father, and being filled would be able to give it to others. So let's pray.